for you this night, and we thank and praise you for your goodness and your blessings in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the ability to meet here in this nice warm building and go through your word. We just ask that you would guide and direct our meditations tonight, that they may be pleasing unto you. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Bibles, if you would, and let's go to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, and if you follow your outline there, you'll see that we've already been through uh, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, Luke chapters 1 through 4, and then Mark, we're still in chapter 1, and now John is giving us this little bit of information here, information that is not included in in the other Gospels. And uh, we'll go uh, the end of John chapter 1, all of John chapter 2, John chapter 3, and actually uh, start getting into John chapter 4 before the other Gospels will again pick up uh, the uh, story But first of all, we're still, just to set the context here, we're still in the um, uh, preparation. We're still in the pre-ministry part. Jesus has been announced at his baptism that he is the Messiah. He was then driven of the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted 40 days. He now comes back and Possibly, though the Bible is not extremely clear here, while he is in the wilderness or somewhere in that immediate time period there, uh, John is now questioned. His ministry has been going on probably about six or eight months, and the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem send to John and try to find out who John is supposed to be. So we start in verse um, 15. It says, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh before me, I mean, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now that's John's testimony to the world of Jesus. In verse 19 starts where we're going to dig in tonight. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Now, uh, if you're here for the Sunday school, we review this pretty regular. Anytime you see that word capital J-E-W-S, that's not talking about all Jewish people. That's talking about the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. We went through his heritage all the way back to David and through Abraham. And uh, uh, it's given even his heritage all the way back to Adam. And uh, all the disciples were Jews. Almost everybody living in the land of Israel. The people to whom this book was addressed were Jewish people. So 
Whenever you see that capital J-E-W-S, these were the Sadducees, the religious leaders, members of the Sanhedrin, and they're trying to figure out who John is. And so it's interesting that they go to John and ask him this question. They don't do that to Jesus later. It's a whole sermon there just in how they treat Jesus differently than they do anyone else. Now, John gives his answer, and he confessed, and deny not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And they said, and they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. And they said unto him, who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. So, we start here, in, and John is saying, I am not the Messiah. They're saying, now, who are you? Now, they ask him if he was Elias or Elijah. Later on, Jesus is going to give testimony and say, if you will receive it, John the Baptist is Elijah that has come for you. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy, but the question still needs to be asked, was John Elijah? No. He was a different person. Did he fulfill the prophecy that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord? Yes, he did. And what we have here, if you will accept it, is a window into understanding God's word. We look in the book of Revelation, and I don't know how many different preachers I've heard trying to identify the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to challenge you, if God could send John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah and fulfill the prophecy that the two witnesses don't have to be Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament brought back to life again. Amen? Uh, Chances are they will be two living persons that God chooses to use in a miraculous way at that time. It gives us an ability to see that God does not have such a strict mechanical understanding of prophecy that it can never be fulfilled. Um, One of the big things when, when I was very young, some guy said he discovered Noah's Ark. And, of course, since then, the History Channel and everybody and their brother have tried to go up there and, and determine whether that was Noah's Ark. And it's interesting to read some of the articles. And it says that, well, they couldn't possibly be Noah's Ark because the mountain on which the Ark is is not named Ararat. Well, read your Bible. It said the Ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, which is a region 
which just happens to be the region where they think they found the ark. Uh, does that prove the Bible? No. You cannot prove something to somebody who doesn't want to believe it. And it's one of the big reasons why I, I don't get all excited uh, when uh, Mel Gibson made his movie, The Passion of the Christ. And all of a sudden, this fellow comes on the scene, I was an agnostic, but now I believe in Jesus. But it's interesting, he wants to sell dozens of books. Uh, the guy's name is Lee Strobel. Now, if you've ever read any of his stuff, I'm sure you've been thoroughly impressed. Uh, it's not bad, but let me tell you something. It's not helpful. Go to the scriptures. Don't go to some other person. Go to the scriptures. When God uses people to bring other people to him, he does not glorify the people. He glorifies himself. Amen? And we get a window here just to look in. Here is John. He said, I'm here to give testimony. I am in the fulfillment of prophecy. And... But I am not who you're looking for, that prophet. Um, if you're wondering who that prophet is, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives a prophecy. God will raise up a prophet in my name, like unto me, unto whom you will listen. So the Jewish people were actually looking for several. They were looking for Elijah to return. They were looking for the Messiah to come. And they were looking for that prophet now, the simple truth is that prophet, Jesus Christ. That is the prophet that gave them the word of God, like Moses did, that they were supposed to listen to. Amen. Uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And then in verse 25, it said they asked him, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? He said, John, okay, so you're none of these people. So why are you baptizing? What in the world are you trying to accomplish? Now, John, again, is going to explain baptism. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth, Bethabarah beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water, 
And John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode on him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. Now, as we read this passage, it would almost seem that part of this passage happened before John baptized Jesus. And I'm I'm not going to argue that point, but what I really believe is that John is just, John the Baptist is recounting the entire story here and, and, and giving the details that he can to these men that are come to see him. He gives a testimony before the representatives of the Sanhedrin. He now gives a testimony before his own disciples. And it's interesting to see the result. In verse 35, it says, Again, the next day after, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, And they followed Jesus. Now here was John. He had several disciples, several young men that had come to him and were learning and being taught by him and kind of abiding with him. We're going to find out the names of these two young guys in just a few minutes. One was Andrew. The other's Philip. They were working with John. They hear John give this testimony the next day after he gives all of this testimony. And this is why I feel that this passage belongs right here after the temptation because Jesus did not call any disciples to him until after he was tempted and the paradigm was set and he was ready to begin his earthly ministry. uh, Andrew and Philip follow him and they ask Jesus... Uh, Jesus actually turns around and asks them, he says, what do you seek? In verse 38, they said in him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? Now, here's what they were actually saying. They said, where do you live? Well, why would they ask that question? Well, because we're going to live there. We were John's disciples. Now we're your disciples. Because we're not going to follow John when we can follow the Messiah. And this was the way that the testimony was supposed to work. This is a natural filling in. And as soon as John gives that testimony to his own disciples, he loses disciples. And Jesus then meets Andrew And Philip and Andrew goes, finds his brother Peter. Interesting uh, event, a series of events here is Andrew brings Peter to Jesus and Jesus gives Peter a new name and almost ignores Andrew. But you know what? Andrew kept following Jesus. I, I like Andrew's spirit. And Philip says not to be undone, outdone by Andrew. Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel 
And Nathaniel is one of those interesting characters because his name really doesn't match up with the list of the apostles. Uh, And yet here he is. And he looks to Philip and he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, those who are supposed to know these things tell us that was a local proverb. It would be kind of like, have you ever heard of a smart hillbilly? Uh, and that's not derogatory, I'll tell you what. I know some very smart hillbillies. And in fact, they love to tie city people up in knots if you go out into the... Uh, be careful. Uh, but Nazareth was known as a place where hillbilly rednecks or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was a place of the uneducated and and, and a place where people just weren't quite uh, as, uh, uh, how shall we say it, uptown as everybody else. And so Nathaniel's first response is, uh, listen, the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, not from Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is like the worst. I mean, if we were expecting anything good, it wouldn't be coming from Nazareth. Uh, It's just one of those places nobody wants to go. But when Jesus meets him, it's interesting what Jesus says to him. In verse 47, he said, Behold an Israelite indeed in in whom is no guile. Now, Nathaniel was taken back from that. He's saying, how in the world do you know me? Jesus was saying, here is somebody, a Jewish man that knows the scriptures, knows what's going on. Nobody's going to trick him. Jesus wasn't being sarcastic. What he was trying to do was get his attention. And so Nathaniel looks at him and said, how do you know me? He said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip came and called you. Now, let me tell you something, only God could do that. And that was Philip's immediate response. And Jesus then addresses Nathanael here and says, Because I said unto thee, verse 50, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He said, You're going to see the greatest things that you have ever heard. How did they see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man? Well, when they opened the tomb, who was there? Oh, there were some angels there, weren't there? When Jesus ascended up into the heavens, where there were some angels there to tell him what was going on. So, um, he said, you're going to see greater things than these. But the thing is, don't believe me just because of the phenomena. Believe me because of who I am. This, was, this is the essence of true salvation, as Jesus is explaining. Uh, there's a gospel that is preached today that Jesus will do good things for you. That's not the gospel of salvation. 
We don't believe in Jesus because He does good things for us. We believe in Jesus because He is God. Will Jesus do good things in your life? I will tell you the best things in my life are because of Jesus. Who would share that testimony with me by lifting a hand and saying amen tonight? The best things in my life are because of Jesus. He cannot help but make your life better because of who He is. But we don't believe in Jesus because of what He does. We believe in Jesus because of who He is. And very early, Jesus is setting this parameter right here. And if you skip over this, you're going to miss the whole purpose of this story being inserted in your text. Um, Sometimes we have the idea that all of a sudden Jesus just appeared and he had these disciples with him. And of course we know there were some problems with the disciples from time to time. But what you need to understand was Jesus carefully picked these men. He had done work in their lives. Each one of them were convinced that he is, that he was the Messiah, the Christ of the Scriptures. In fact, Peter would echo those words when we get to uh, John chapter 6. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Amen. And we're going to see the disciples vacillating back and forth as human beings do. But Jesus is setting those parameters, we might say, the the boundaries, how his ministry was going to to happen. Nathaniel, don't believe in me because of the phenomena, because of the miraculous things that I talk about. Believe in me for who I am. And that's what we need to do ourselves. If you just believe in Jesus because of the good things he does for you, let me tell you, you're going to hit a rough spot when he's not going to meet your expectations and he'll no longer be your God. Because he's not a God to meet your expectations. He's a God who wants to change you to meet his. Amen? And so we get to chapter 2. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And a lot of people want to make a big deal about the third day. I have no understanding as to why. Um, It could be the third day after Andrew and uh, Philip, then Peter and Nathaniel made connection with Jesus. That would be the simplest in the text. It could be the third day after they returned to Galilee. But... Right there, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. 
and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler had tasted the water that was made wine, they knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine unto now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now, people make more out of the details of this story that are unimportant and they skip what is really going on. What is really going on is the last verse we read. Jesus manifested his glory, his disciples believed on him. That's the important part of this story. What do we see here? We see a pattern in the Gospels. John says, don't believe on me, believe on him who's coming. What did Jesus tell uh, Andrew and Nathaniel and, and Philip? He told Nathaniel, don't believe on me just because I was able to tell you where you were before Philip came to get you. You believe on me for who I am. And he manifests his glory by making water into wine. Now, I'm only going to take a few seconds here, and if I really confuse you, if you've never heard this before, see me afterward, we'll try to make time to catch you up. But we know the wine was not alcoholic. It's just amazing how many people. Jesus made wine? Uh, let me tell you something. How many of you have ever heard of a wine press? How many of you know what a wine press is? What comes out of a wine press? Grape juice. No time to ferment in why don't they call it a juice press instead of a wine press then? Well, it just might be that the word wine refers to anything that is a derivative of the grape. Because then they take the juice and they put it into a wine vat or fat to process it in order to make whatever they're going to make, whether they're going to make sugar out of it or they're going to preserve it, or they're going to turn it into an alcoholic beverage. It takes time, but they put it into a wine vat in order to do that. They put the wine into wine skins. Is it wine yet? Well, it can take years for... I mean, it's a process that takes several months anyway to get the first part of the... Uh, to make alcoholic wine... But how many of you know what happens if you let the ferment, fermentation process complete itself normally? You get vinegar, not wine. You know, the idea that somebody sat at a bowl of grape juice and it got warm and fuzzy and they got schnockered by drinking it. Uh, do you know how much of that stuff you would have to drink in order to get... Uh, 
let me tell you something. You would have other problems first. And we don't need to go there. It's just really bad stuff is going to happen to you long before you get drunk. They add alcohol to the wine today. It is processed very carefully. I was told when I was a young man, well, Jesus had to drink alcoholic wine because they didn't have any way of preserving grape juice. That is a bold-faced lie. History is full of recipes of how to preserve grape juice. Most of the time, they would boil it into a syrup seal it airtight, and then they would reconstitute it. And when you see strong wine in your Bible, what it's talking about is uh, exactly what my mom used to do with orange juice. How many of you remember those little frozen orange juice containers? Do you know how much orange juice that thing is supposed to make? Well, it's about one to one and a half or something like that is orange juice. But somewhere on there it said, if you want a pleasing orange drink, this will make a half gallon of orange drink. And my mother always put in at least a half gallon of water, sometimes even more, uh, and uh, because she knew what was going to happen to it, no matter what it tasted like, as soon as it sat on the table, it's just going to disappear. So why not add more water to it? The strong wine that is in the Bible just means that it was reconstituted back to the point that it was 100% grape juice, not 80% water and a little grape flavoring in there. And, And so what Jesus had done was he had just turned the water into grape juice. And by the way, When they have a wine tasting contest or uh, thing, how many people know what they do to the wine when they taste it? This is really gross. They spit it out. Do you want me, you want me to tell you why? Because if you tasted and actually drank three or four glasses of wine, you would be so out of your mind that you wouldn't be able to taste anything. So you have to spit the alcohol back out If they had been having what most people call a party today, how in the world would the governor of the feast been able to tell whether it was grape juice or turpentine? Uh, I mean, he just... This was several days into... uh, Let me explain something to you. The Jewish people did not believe in drunkenness in this day. It was a great sin. And... The simple truth was Jesus made grape juice that tasted like it had just been pressed from the vine. Only he could do that. The disciples, he manifested his glory. How in the world could he manifest his glory giving something rotten? How many of you know what alcohol really is? To put it mildly, it is the defecation of bacteria. That is what it is. It is the byproduct, the waste of bacteria. It's a deadly poison. If you took half a glass, six ounces of pure alcohol and drank it, you would be dead 
If you're a normal person, you would be dead before we could get you to the hospital to get your stomach pumped. But it's regulated because everybody wants to be happy. The only depressant that makes you happy. I wish we could just look at all the sadness that alcohol brings, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sin that is connected to that filthy substance. No one would ever accuse Jesus of passing it out and manifesting his glory at the same time. Do you see the contradiction there? And so what we have here is Jesus manifesting his glory Because he wants people to believe on him. Why does Jesus want people to believe on him? Because if you don't believe on Jesus, you're not going to heaven. That's why. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. And there is no other way. Now, just touching on a few things here. It appears that Mary is the one that's instigating this, the mother uh, of Jesus, that she is the one that's saying, hey, Jesus, you need to fix this problem. And we don't know where and how all that fits together. But I'll tell you this, Jesus was not being disrespectful to Mary when he called her woman. He, He was not rebuking her by saying, my time is not yet. I'll tell you, there's just some parts of this story that I can't give you a a good explanation. It's just there. Jesus said, fill the water pots. As far as we know, a firkin is about a fourth of a barrel. It's right around nine gallons. So if you got two firkins, that's 18, almost 20 gallons. Three firkins is about 30 gallons. You got six water pots there. Roughly 180 gallons of wine. Uh, If this were alcoholic, it would be enough to intoxicate the entire county for a month. Uh, There weren't that many people that lived there. This was something that would have been a blessing to the family. In fact, one of the measures of riches in this day was what you possessed from your vineyard, the fruits of your vineyard. And so this would have been quite a treasure that Jesus would have left the family with. And so we see the story of Jesus. Don't forget the key. He manifests his glory and his disciples believed on him. Then we go to verse 12. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum which was not far from Cana, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. Now, I want you to get this. This is important here. Jesus leaves Cana where the feast was. He goes to Capernaum where he will eventually set up his headquarters for his earthly ministry. But look who's traveling with him, his mother, his brethren. Now, his brethren were his physical brothers. He had 
later on, we'll get into the names of some of them, James and Judas and, and several others. Jesus had physical brothers, same mother, different father. Mary and Joseph enjoyed a regular, normal marriage which produced normal, regular children. Amen? Uh, don't try to attach anything. Apparently, Joseph is gone at this time. And so Jesus is taking care of his mother and his brethren, and they are following with him. But who else is coming? His disciples. Jesus has already started to gather people who are going to follow him. Not all disciples were apostles. And so they traveled to Capernaum. They were not there for a few days. The Passover uh, was coming three times in a year. Every male had to appear in Jerusalem in the temple and present themselves before the Lord. And Jesus was there at the Passover And Jesus, verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, just a note here, we'll touch on this. The reason you always go up to Jerusalem was Jerusalem was located on the top of a mountain. They were not going north, they were going south, actually. But Jerusalem was on the top of a mountain, and so you always went up. And in the Old Testament, it was considered the highest point on the earth because that's where God met man at a blood-covered mercy seat. And so it's always up to Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, how many of you know where that verse is found? The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Let me check my cross-references here. I'm sure it tells me. Could I challenge you that the disciples were much more familiar with their scriptures than we are with ours? How else would they know that that scripture was there? And of course, we understand that's the Holy Spirit of God's job is to teach us What the Bible says, it's Psalm 69. Um, But the simple truth of the matter is, here we have just a little reference. If you skip over, you're going to miss something. The disciples couldn't carry around Psalms in their back pocket like we do. They would have had to have learned the Bible well enough at the readings at the synagogues and on the feast days in the temple of Jerusalem to have put this verse in their mind. And when they saw Jesus acting and behaving in this way, the Holy Spirit 
was then able to make a connection with something they knew in the Bible. And John records it right here. You want to know why I talk about your daily Bible reading schedule? It's important to put God's word in your soul. You've got to do it. You've got to read. And and I want to challenge you, the daily Bible reading schedule, the little green book that we have this year, that is your minimum requirements. Absolute minimum. You ought to be doing more than that. You say, I don't have time. Well, you make time for whatever is important. Do we not? How many of you met somebody that you didn't, haven't seen for a long time or somebody calls on the phone? You know what you do? You make time. Make time for God's word. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'll tell you, um, there's a lot of frustration that could be avoided in our daily lives if we would make time to spend in God's word first. Amen? And you say, well, I just have a problem getting up early in the morning. Well, do it before you go to bed at night. Amen? Read on your lunch break. It'll save you from having to talk about who showed up in what or what not at the Grammys and all of the different stupid things that people spend all their time talking and wondering about. I don't care at all who wins what. It's the most meaningless thing that goes on. A bunch of Hollywood freaks getting rewarded for being freakish. How about we stick with the word? Amen? How did the disciples know that verse was in the Bible? If they hadn't spent time with the scriptures before they became Jesus' disciples. Why do you think Jesus chose them as disciples? Amen? This is the hardest part of this as we're going through not to just stop and preach at every point uh, along the way. And uh, trying not to do that. I want to finish this tonight. But Jesus cleansed the temple. And again, we've gone over this in the past because of the dishonesty. They were charging incredibly high prices for the sacrifices. The scales were dishonest. They were stealing from people as they came in. They were stealing from them. As they weighed them out, they were stealing from them uh, as they bought the sacrifice. And that's what Jesus meant by not making my house and house of merchandise. He was saying, I don't want your common thievery going on in the name of the worship of God. I've had some people say, we ought never sell anything in the church. Well, we tried to do a good job of never merchandising our people. We don't offer you phone companies and mortgage deals. Get calls every week. Health screening, all of those things. I said, listen, you're trying to sell something, aren't you? Oh, no, it's all free. Well, what happens if somebody gets sick? Well, then we recommend they come to our office. I said, you're selling something. 
I had a lady call up the other day and said, we're going to lower your lease agreements. I said, well, how are you going to do that? Aren't you trying to sell me something? I said, oh, no, no, we're just going to lower your lease. I said, if I have a lease with another company, how can you lower it unless I change my lease to your company? Snicker, snicker, snicker on the end of the phone. I said, you need to talk to your boss. We don't do business with companies that are dishonest in their marketing. If you want to sell us something, sell it. If you don't, we're, you know, don't, don't try to trick us. We, we don't like that here. Jesus was upset because they were making profit part of the worship. We don't worship God for profit. We don't worship Jesus because he does things. We worship him for who he is. And you're going to find that theme repeated all the way through the New Testament. Amen? And so Jesus is then questions, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now look at verse 19. You're going to have to put this one in your memory. Remember this verse because it's going to come back. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered Now, here is something important, that he had said this unto him, and they believed the what? What's the next word there? They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You know what John just did? He equated Jesus' words present as he was writing this story with scriptures, the Old Testament prophecy, They were equal. Don't miss things like this. It's important. That's why it's there. And so, what Jesus said is equal, is scripture, is God's words given to man. But look at the testimony that Jesus gives. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify a man for he knew what was in man. Now there's a lot of people willing to believe in Jesus for the miracles that they see. But some of these were the same people that were crying crucify him three years later. Jesus did not commit himself unto men. He expects us to commit ourselves unto him. And if you get that, then the story of Nicodemus in the next chapter will make a lot more sense to you. Amen? How many of you know the story of Nicodemus? Do we have to spend a lot of time here on Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews, the Bible tells us. He came to Jesus by night. 
Now, Nicodemus knew who Jesus was. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We know where you have come from. I want you to remember that because in a little while, they're going to say, we don't know whence you are. Oh, wait a minute. They knew where he was from. They knew where Jesus was from. Nicodemus came to him by night because he didn't want those that had already made up their mind about who Jesus wasn't to interfere with him trying to find out who Jesus really was. See, no matter how well you know the Bible, unless your knowledge of the Scriptures bring you to Jesus, it doesn't do you any good. I don't know how many people I've met quoting Bible verses out their ears and then denying the fact that Jesus came to save them. Very confused. But I'll tell you where that confusion comes from. It comes from not needing Jesus first. He's the key to understanding the Scriptures. Amen. And so Nicodemus is totally confused when Jesus says you must be born again. Had a Greek person one time tell me, he says, the Bible doesn't say being born again. It says born from above. I said, so when you were born of your mother, you were born from above? That's beside the point. You see, you're born once here on earth. Then you got to be born from heaven, amen? You've got to be born again. And you can argue about all those terms, but you can't argue that there are two separate births. One from mankind, one from God. I often joke home is the place where they have to let you in, amen? Somebody looks at me kind of funny that way. But they have to let you in because you belong there. Amen? But when you're born from God, that means he has to let you in. It's not because of you. It's not because of what you've done. I I wish I could stop people from beating themselves up when they sin. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to go out and sin so you have something to be proud about. No, that's not what the Bible says either. But you let Jesus take care of the sin. Amen? That's what he came to do. Just like when a baby's born. Unless something catastrophic is going wrong, the doctor has to get out of the way and let Mama, do the work. Amen? By the way, God does not believe in birth defects. He's never halfway saved anybody. He's never had a child that, well, something happened and that one's just a little different than the rest. Praise God, when he saves somebody, when they're born in his family, they're born eternally of his children. 
No, we need to rejoice in the Lord for that. That was what he was trying to tell Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't quite get it figured out here. But before the end, he got it figured out. I want to shake his hand someday when I get to heaven. But first place we need to go, throne. We'll worry about shaking other people's hands later. Sometime way later. In fact, we may never get around to doing it. Because it's not the other people that is important. It's Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we work our way through the Gospels, I pray that you just give direction, that we'd not be tedious. But Lord, that we would catch some of these incredible little points that are just often overlooked. And Lord, that you would bring them into our heart and our soul. That we would walk with you. That we would understand that we don't serve you, we don't worship you, we don't give our life to you because of what you've done. It's because of who you are. And Lord, you give us life. Let us walk and live in that life. Help us to live as true children of the true King. Give us grace that we may serve you and humility when we fall to come back and confess our sins and to get up and serve you more. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, I'll just give you an opportunity if the Lord's spoken to your heart. The altar is open.